Hello, and welcome to the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luca Gianni. And today we're joined by a special guest, Jose Borges. Jose is the CEO of Bold Type. They are a product development firm specializing in connected wireless medical devices, and they practice agile techniques, and we'd love to hear more. Jose, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Absolutely. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about uh, Bold Type and how you incorporate uh, lean agile techniques? Yeah, so as, as you so eloquently put it, we're, we're a company that specializes in connected wireless medical devices. And it's, it's essentially a niche where we found that, um, you know, a lot of medical technology is going toward connectedness, toward the home, towards having some level of connectivity to the cloud. Uh, but not a lot of medical device product development firms had expertise there. And I've got two partners between the three of us. We've got a lot of experience in wireless connectivity and in cloud connectivity. Um, you know, those two things are related, but not the same. And, and so we said, you know, let's build a company that specializes in this and, and everybody on the team is formally trained and, and a specialist in that area because that'll allow us to develop products uh, faster and, you know, less expensively, less risk than, than our competitors who maybe will do all types of products. So we're a very focused company. This is the types of products that we do, connected wireless medical um, we're ISO 1345 certified and, um, yeah, and, and everything we do goes to the cloud. But specifically, uh, you know, you're, you're here because you really espouse agile, agile principles in your work. Can I give us a flavor of how that, of how that feels in the, in the day-to-day work in your company? Yeah, we're, we're strong believers, not only in agile, but also in, in some of the, uh, lean startup kind of philosophies. And, you know, the three of us actually come from industries that are not medical. And um, that gave us an opportunity to really adopt some practices which have not been as popular in the medical devices world, but that we think brings some tremendous benefits. So Agile, of course, is one of them. And, you know, Agile tends to be a lot easier, let's put it that way, or just more amenable to software development. But we find that there's practices within Agile that actually, you know, do well in hardware development as well. It's not, you know, perfect. It's not a one-to-one. It doesn't work quite the same way. But there's some, some practices that you can bring in from Agile into the device development side. So a lot of our products tend to have kind of a hardware component to them, uh, like, like what we think of as the device. And then software, both embedded and um, apps. Right. So whether they're mobile apps or web applications, and then, of course, on the back end, server code, databases, all of that. And so, you know, two thirds of our company is software and all of them operate, you know, under agile um, methodology. Right. But still incorporating all of the uh, regulatory requirements that FDA calls for. So, Luca, this is a dream come true for you because we finally have someone who's talking about agile in a hardware context. Exactly, because I keep making this argument that I don't understand why why there is this supposed like contrast between hardware development and software development, and and agile wouldn't work in an agile hardware wouldn't work in an agile context, and I don't see why it wouldn't. So, and and you just hinted at some things that work and some things that don't. Can you go into more detail about that? What what works well, what doesn't work well as far as agile practices in hardware? Yeah, so, so you know, specifically lean agile too. Um, so, you know, for maybe people in your audience who aren't so familiar with lean, the, the whole lean startup philosophy really encompasses around like, how do you, how do you optimize for getting the right product to the market in, in a short period of time? 
And that means that you may do things that initially feel like, okay, this is actually taking longer because we're doing more things earlier. But in the long term, it means, you know, you might go through another path, which gets you with a product to market faster, except it's the wrong product. And so did you really succeed or did you, did you actually dismally fail? And so, um, you know, for us, that combination of lean philosophy. So what is lean philosophy for us is, you know, okay, you've got to hype, especially for really innovative products, you've got a hypothesis of what this product should be and how it's going to really dazzle your users. What's the, you know, what's kind of the biggest risk around this from a usability point of view? How do we develop the simplest experiment to put this in front of users quickly and gain feedback, not only, you know, their verbal feedback, but observational feedback, right? Watching them use this prototype or this model or this whatever and getting their reaction very early in the process. So maybe we're going to spend two, three weeks developing a simple mock-up. It might not even be a functional prototype. It might just be something that's the right size, right? Or if we're doing it in, in you know, software, we might just do the, the UI, simple UI and put it in like InVision or something, something that like a user can kind of click through and it doesn't quite work, but you're able to gain the reactions um, and really spend maybe a couple of months iterating on that so that once you go and code it up, you didn't end up going and spending, you know, three, four, six months coding up something and then learning that patients are totally confused by your user interface. So that's kind of the lean side of things. On the agile side of things, you know, because it's medical, you know, there's a couple of things that we like to do. So one of them is let's try to iterate a lot before we kick off the formal design controls phase of, of the project, right? So, you know, there's, once you get into, hey, design controls, right? Here's your design inputs and design outputs, design verification, design validation. Um, there is some overhead that comes with that, but there's a lot of things that you can do to de-risk the product earlier before you even enter that phase and you should, right? And so from an agile point of view, it means, okay, what, what's, what is that experiment that we really want to run? What's, you know, what's a short sprint that we, can, that we can focus on to get that working? And how do we get that out? And maybe, you know, there's three or four features that we're doing and you can stagger these things, right? So, hey, this one feature we really want to get feedback on, let's spend one sprint getting that in place, get that out there, you know, with a clinical team or the UX team to start getting feedback as we're working on the second sprint of the second feature that we think is also important to test and then bring that out and kind of stagger um, sprints of development and user experience research. So that's some of the ways that we use both agile and lean philosophy. Interesting. So now you've explained to us some of the things that work. I'm still curious to hear about the things that don't work. Yeah. I mean, I think more than, than things that don't work, it's things that are more challenging, right? So for example, and, and this is something that, that kind of between us, right? Um, we're, we're still working to... Uh, Nobody's going to, to hear about it. <laughs> exactly. Everybody else plug in your ears, right? We're, we're still really working out the kinks of this. But for example... Classic medical device product development says that you should come up with all of your um, product requirements and then you should come up with all of your design inputs, all of the like maybe software requirements, and then you should do your development and then you should do your verification testing and then you should do your validation testing. Well, that's, you know, that means that supposes that, you know, precisely what the product is very early in the project. And so that, that keeps you from kind of doing some of these iterative loops where you're learning and then optimizing based on those learnings. So what we find is a more optimal approach is to say, let's come up with the core set of product requirements that we know are not going to change. 
And now from those, let's come up with the core set of software requirements that we know are not going to change. And then let's put together the sprints to get those developed and the verification test cycles. And then let's go back and evaluate if we need to change some of the product requirements. Maybe we need to add a few more features. Maybe we learned something where we, we thought it should be one way, but it really should be another way. So let's take a moment to go back and update the product requirements. So it's, it's really incorporating sprints, not just of development, but of like the full design control cycle, where in a new sprint, you might be saying, let's revisit product requirements, let's revisit design inputs, software requirements. Let's do a sprint of maybe it's visual design. Let's do a sprint of, um, or in the same sprint, let's, you know, let's do some visual design, let's do some implementation, let's do some verification testing, but it's all incremental. You're not starting from scratch. You know, you've done maybe 50% of the work up front and in one sprint, you might be spending, you know, 10% of that initial effort in updating some of your documentation and executing a sprint. It means that sprints for us are a little bit longer than they would be for doing a consumer product. So we might not be doing, you know, one week or two week sprints or sprints might be a month because they, they sort of have that, um, you know, that, that documentation portion to them. But uh, it still, again, optimizes the overall schedule and gets a better product to market. Do you ever uh, find, Jose, that, that after a few sprints, you've essentially got a product that could be released? And at that point, it's really up to the customer saying, like, this is now in a releasable state. We can release it now or we can do another sprint and see if it's, you know, like the, the, the feedback that you have for us now. And you kind of make that judgment call of do we spend another sprint improving or do release at this point? Absolutely. That's, that's a really good question. And it's something that um, is one of the challenges that comes from doing medical devices that have both a physical device and software, right? That's a lot harder to do with hardware, right? I mean, if you, you don't want to launch and go, ah, oh, let's change the tooling and let's, you know, let's have another release, right? Because that's very expensive and time consuming. But software, you can. And it's one of the reasons why almost every product we develop has over the air firmware update capabilities, right? Because you know, our what we would argue is get a minimum viable product. So that's kind of that lean startup philosophy. Get a, get a product to market that meets your users' core needs, but then learn from feedback from your from your users. Or sometimes it's not even feedback. It's like you know that there's features that you want to release, but they don't need to be there. You know, in the first generation of the product. But if you've got the capability to update, you know, apps and firmware um, after the initial release. That gives you a lot of flexibility to then launch a product earlier. So when we do a a proposal, oftentimes, and when we set up a schedule, what we'll do is on the device, you know, we'll kind of, we might have a phase zero, one, two, three, right? On the hardware side, phase zero is like, before we get into design controls, maybe we're going to want to do some experiments, some proof of concept stuff, you know, some, some, some prototyping. um, And we call that phase zero. Phase one is what we usually do is the formal planning phase on the device side. Phase two is the implementation phase. And phase three is like transfer to manufacturing and support after the device has been manufactured. On the app side, it's a little bit different. So phases zero, one, and two may be the same, but for us, phase four is iteration on software. And and we always encourage our our clients to think about it that way, to say, after we release the product, we're going to want to improve the software because number one, because you can do it, right? It's it's a lot easier. You know, if you've got uh, a mobile application as part of the product, you know, releasing that a new version of that to your to your user base, your patients, your doctors is very straightforward from a technical point of view. 
And if you've got over-the-air software update capabilities on the firmware, you can also do that. So give yourself an opportunity to continuously make the product better and launch something sooner. I'm really, really envious because relatively few of the products I work on are connected and therefore have even the option for over-the-air software updates. So I would love <laughs> I would love the opportunity to be able to you know, update the software on an ongoing basis uh, and improve it. Uh, and, and especially based on clinical, on clinical feedback uh, and it's, it's often not an option. Yeah. And sometimes it's not, you know, just a, an improvement. Sometimes it's, you find that there's, um, you know, there's a fault somewhere where under rare conditions, you get a failure mechanism and, you know, you're faced with the fact of like, okay, dang it, 2% of our products are going to have this failure mode. You know, and the risk isn't high enough where, where it requires a recall or the risk is actually high enough that you require a recall. Well, that's really expensive, right? If instead you could just do an over-the-year software update, you know, that's that's a huge uh, instrument of, of like saving you a lot of money and, and heartache. I don't Are there warning signs or indicators if you're kind of moving too fast? Does that make sense? Like, like, or, or essentially if you're going too slow in terms of your, your cadence, your iteration cadence um, or things of that nature? Yeah. Let me, I might be answering a different question, but I think it's a good, I think it's an important one to address. Um, and maybe, it, maybe it addresses something that you're asking Jeff, which is like, what's, what's like, what are some of the biggest challenges with, with agile when you're trying to do medical? And I think, um, this ties in with the speed, right. And the cadence, the biggest challenge for us, because we don't develop products for ourselves. We develop products for a client is that, you know, we talked about ideally, you've got these sprints that include, you know, uh, adjustments to product requirements, adjustments to design inputs, you know, UX, implementation, testing, etc. Well, if you update the product requirements, and it takes your client two months to, you know, to approve the changes, it just killed your cycles, right? And that's, that's one of the biggest challenges we have, because particularly if you're dealing with a client that has, you know, significant bureaucracy in place, um, sometimes it really slows down the cycles. And in those cases, agile might actually hurt you, right? Because if you're having to go, you know, for a simple reason, right? If you're, if you have a client that takes two months to review and approve a document, but you only do that once at the beginning of the project, then it costs you two months. But if it costs you two months, every cycle, and you've got five cycles, it just costs you 10 months. So, um, one of the things that's really important is to set up that process with your client early to make sure that they understand how important it is for them to approve things um, quickly or to have them essentially allow you to um, not require their signatures for a lot of the incremental changes up until you get to a certain checkpoint. And then you might kind of retroactively confirm that everything and have them sign off on it. But that, that ends up being one of the biggest challenges um, in Agile is when you've got an external party that isn't on the same cadence as the development team. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's really a, that really is a problem. And I know that you and I had chatted about that a couple of months ago, I think on Slack, uh, you know, you essentially asking me how I dealt with that. And I think my answer at the time was I tend to deal with, like, I don't deal with large <laughs> bureaucratic organizations because I work on smaller, less complex devices. They're typically smaller, less complex companies. And often it's, it's, there's a primary contact that I can just grab them by the ear and make them sit down for a meeting and, get their approval. Mm -hmm. And when you're working with larger organizations, that's, that's often not, uh, just not possible. Um, but it's interesting. That's, that might be one of, you know, it's, it's kind of a business decision as to what projects you take, but it's, it's, uh, 
you know, it might be essentially one of your qualification things of essentially does this, does this potential client fit in with the way that we work? Um, and, and sometimes it's worth it and you say, yeah, they don't, but we'll, we'll kind of make modifications and accommodations for it. And sometimes you might say, you know, if, if they're completely unable to match the, the agile way of working, it's, it's not worth working with them. Um, it's, it, that can be a very tricky decision to make. Yeah, and 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 it it really impacts those initial conversations. Like even if it's even if it's not a big client, because this isn't only a challenge with larger companies. Sometimes you've got startups that just don't move at a pace because maybe like for example, um, the CEO. There's like a sense like the CEO has to sign off on everything, even though there's a product manager or even though there's somebody else. Um, when you're going to this level, it's got to be this, and the CEO is really busy, right? So it's having those conversations early of saying, look have your product manager approve everything up until a certain point. So maybe the, the first one has to get approved by CEO and the last one has to get approved by CEO. But in between there, you know, really argue for the importance of, of, of giving you the autonomy to sign off on everything so that we can move quickly through those cycles. So you have to, but you know, it, it took us, it took us some time and some experience and some, some, you know, scars, right. Some scar tissue to, understand how to how to have those conversations early because in the end it's for their benefit right like we're not doing it for us we're doing it for them where you know if they don't if they don't understand the importance of speed um it ends up hurting them quite a bit what do you think luca like how do you get a client to actually see the light and and realize that yes speed is beneficial for them but it means that they need to do you know, quite tremendous work. A lot of clients, I think, are, are just sort of expecting to do it the old way, throw a bunch of specifications over the wall at you, and then you go away for half a year, and then you come back with, you know, something. And instead, like two weeks later, you're already back and you say, how's this look? And th- this is actually really interesting because I think I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing your answer because a lot of our listeners want to maybe convince their management to adopt Agile. And we actually just released an episode on that. But I, I imagine the, some of the same arguments that you use with your clients might be something that some of our listeners have to use with their executive team. Uh, so yeah, really curious to hear. I, you know, I don't find that it's that hard of a, of a sell, really, if it does require some education, right? So, you know, most of my career, frankly, I've worked with, with lean and agile types of approaches and mentality. I mean, the first time I read, you know, Four Steps to the Epiphany or, you know, the Lean Startup and those types of books... It just, I was like, this is so obvious. Like, why would you operate any other way, right? But it turns out that for a long time, that's not how people operated. And still today, there's there's a lot of people who don't operate that way. But I think if you explain it to people, you know, they get it, right? So, um, and it helps to, to provide some examples, right? I mean, it's like, all right, you're certain that your user wants this feature, right? And this feature, particularly the stuff that's going to take a lot of effort to implement, what happens if we spend a year implementing it? And then when you put it in front of your user, it turns out that that's totally not what they needed, right? Or, or that they're not using it at all. You will have just spent a year of effort developing something that's a very minimal value. So can we find an experiment that we can do in a month to put something in front of some users that allows you to de-risk this, right? It's, it's, it's a business risk benefit analysis. So you know, and maybe instead of having the product done in 12 months, it'll be done in 13, but it'll be the right product rather than spending 12 months, then realizing it's the wrong product and then having to spend another, you know, six to 12 months fixing it. 
So, you know, I find that if you, if you position it as a risk benefit type of, of um, instrument and, uh, and the fact that I think most of us have experience having launched products where there's something that surprises us about it, right? It's like, oh, wow, we really thought users would find this intuitive and they don't. We really thought users would use this feature a lot and they don't. Um, or like every one of the users keeps coming back to us and asking us about this one thing. And so, you know, if you can, if you can kind of go back into your mental archive and think of those situations and you think of like, how could I have preempted that? It, it always comes back to putting something in front of users earlier, right? And it doesn't have to be the product. It can be something much simpler um, that just gets to the crux of the question. So, you know, the short answer is, there is an educational piece with, with clients. But what I've found is that that's, that's a huge um, selling point, if you will. Meaning that when you explain that well and the, and the potential client, let's say you're trying to you know, talk it to a prospective client and you explain this well, that's how you operate. They're like, wow, I mean, that's, that sounds great. And that's something that we would want to work with, right? Like that sounds way better than us sending you some requirements. You develop it for a long time. We get it back and it's not exactly what we thought it would be or what our users need. How um, how easy have you found it to um, to stave off those difficult conversations about, or to, to manage those difficult conversations about like responsibility and that kind of thing? Uh, because something that I've observed, you know, I do a lot of training on, on DevOps and Agile and, and those kinds of topics for big corporations. And they say that, they have big trouble working with their suppliers in an agile manner because, you know, everything's fine as long as, as, long as things are going fine, fine. But as soon as you have some kind of unpleasant surprise and, you know, sooner or later you will, then the lawyers enter the room and there's lots of debate and lots of, you know, waving contracts back and uh, around. And, and many corporations have actually come to the conclusion that you cannot do agile with external suppliers. You have to have your people in-house and then you can make it work because everybody's on the same team. Have you had experiences like that? I really haven't. Um, God, I mean, knock on wood, I, I still haven't had anybody pull out a contract with us. <laughs> I think that's that's more more than agile. That's just having really good rapport and communications with your clients, right? I mean, we've, we've got a, a motto here that says good news can travel slowly, but bad news should travel fast. Meaning like, you know, like you just said, right, you're always going to hit um, bumps in the road. Um, I think the classic mistake that people make, and this isn't just, you know, suppliers or whatever, this is employees, this is partners, this is anybody, is to try to hide the bad news, right? It's like oftentimes like they try to hide it to see if they can come up with a solution or find a way to catch up or something like that. And then more time has passed and now they're like nervous because now it's like this happened two weeks ago and I still haven't said anything. So they keep hiding it. Maybe nobody will notice and this is like such a terrible mistake. So, you know, the thing to do is with your clients, if you, whether it's like, hey, we thought this thing was going to take a week and it's taken three weeks because of X, Y, or Z. We, we thought this approach was going to work and it turns out we hit a limitation because of whatever reason. Whatever it is, always put it in front of, of the other party as early as possible and, and really take on, you know, another kind of just philosophical thing that we, we try to uh, make part of our culture is, you know, our clients, you know, we, we're on the same team. Like it's not, it can't be two teams, right? Like if, if that's the mentality on either side, you're setting yourself up for, for, if not failure, certainly a less optimal outcome. Because, you know, if we're facing a problem 
as, as a, as a development firm and you're my client. And now you're like, you know, having side conversations and worried and like, you know, that sort of thing, rather than together coming and figuring out the right solution. Um, it's not going to be a good outcome. So it, it's really a matter of, of building good rapport and stuff in terms of, um, you know, agile versus, so I think there's kind of two different questions in what you were asking. One of them is agile versus non-agile. The other one is internal versus external. Um, I'm not sure that non-agile is better. I would, I would think non-agile is much worse because in agile, at least the client is seeing progress, you know, periodically and incrementally, right? I mean, something that we oftentimes try to do is very early in a project, deliver something to the client that gives them a sense of security, like, okay, these guys can move at a click. They've, they've got the competence, you know, they're going to deliver stuff. I've, I've seen it where companies, you know, for, for four months only are delivering PowerPoint and the client isn't seeing like something tangible. And at some point, you know, at that point, if it's all like vaporware on the other side, right. If they're not really making progress, they're just telling you, like you just dug yourself into a big hole as, as the client on the client side. And the clients know that, right? So that's a risk. Like if they haven't seen anything, it's been a month, it's been two months, it's been three months. And all they've seen is, is status updates, but not working code or not, you know, UI or not something. They've seen status updates on the invoices. <laughs> exactly. PowerPoint and invoices. Um, that, that creates a lot of um, just apprehension and, and concern. So it, it's a lot of relationship management that comes from building trust. And a way to build trust is to deliver, right? To say, I'm going to get you this in a couple of weeks. And then you get it to them. You know, here's what we're going to give you in two more weeks. And then you get it to them. Um, and that's, you know, agile is more amenable to that, right? Because if you're doing two week sprints or three week sprints, you should have something that you can show and, and deliver. So there's a little bit also of, of just strategy around, you know, if you can do different things at different times from a development point of view, um, you know, some things have to be done in a particular sequence, but other things can be done in parallel. There's a little bit of like, what's the thing we can do earlier in the project that just gives them evidence of progress, right? Helps them see that there's progress. It's like a little bit of a psychological thing. Um, so those are all factors, but, um, you know, that's more of a, that, that's more of a agile versus non-agile, not so much the internal versus external. We can talk for a while about internal versus external. Uh, I had a specific question about um, that. This may be specific to the medical device industry, which not you know not all of our listeners are in. But in the medical device industry, usability studies um, are are a big thing. That's essentially how you do your your validation that you ensure that you built the right product in the end. You know, at the end of a project, it's called a summative usability study. But you can do formative usability studies throughout the project. But there's still they're called formative, but they are, they are still formal in a sense. Like you actually gather, you know, focus groups or, or, and have very detailed scripts that you go through. You maybe hire a UI, a, a usability consulting firm to run these. Do you tend to use those or do you tend to do more informal investigations where, you know, you, you know, some key opinion leaders on the, of, of maybe clinicians, the end users, and you just meet directly with them and show them the the product in progress. Um, how do you how do you typically handle that end user feedback during the course of a project? Yeah, so so I mean the short answer is yes, right? So we do both. Um, so um, 
you know, there's, there's essentially three groups, right? There's us as a development team, there's the client, and then there's the user. And so getting input from the client is good and getting input from the end user is better. And so, you know, from a relationships point of view, oftentimes um, the client has a really good relationship with users. And so it's easier. And again, it's a team, it's a team effort, right? So it's easier for us to go, look, here's like a risk component, right? Like on usability, here's an experiment that we propose to run. You guys already have a really good relationship with your users. We can help you put together, like you said, the questionnaires, the, you know, the experiment set up, what the protocol is going to be, and you guys go and do it. And maybe somebody from our team will, will participate or, you know, maybe they'll be on through video or whatever else, because it is helpful for the development team to observe in, in like directly feedback from users oftentimes. So that's one approach. And then another approach that we've also done is like, we'll take care of it, right? Like, so we'll, we'll put together the usability study and we'll go engage in it. And, you know, at the end of the day, it is really helpful for the people doing the development to be able to see the response of users. It, it just gives you a whole different context. I'm actually a fan of having engineers, right? Sitting in user interviews, sitting in user, um, you know, um, investigations, right? There's nothing as compelling for an engineer to design things differently than watching somebody be frustrated uh, when using something they developed, right? So if I tell an engineer, look, there's something about this that's not quite right, you know, it's, you, ha- you have to hit the button three times and, it, you know, it's, people don't get it and an engineer is going to be like, it's so obvious, you just do it, it's no big deal, right? But when they watch, you know, and, and the, the target user is, is, you know, a 75-year-old uh, man, you know, and, and they're watching and he's really frustrated. It's like, wow, okay, I get it now, right? So, so it kind of stimulates the creative juices um, when you're watching people struggle with a product. And, and so I'm, I'm a fan of, you know, sometimes it's directly watching, sometimes it's recordings, but, um, you know, formative studies are really important. Now, some of the, the, the informals, of course, that's, that's a little bit more expensive in terms of time and money than just having a couple of KOLs look at it and give you their feedback. So for some of the less risky things, or maybe when you're polishing that sort of thing, it might be fine just to get input from, from the KOLs, but things that are really user dependent and where the KOL is not the user, um, you really want to get, you know, feedback right from the horse's mouth. I don't know what a KOL is. A key opinion leader. So that's a, that's a a three letter acronym used quite a bit in medical devices, but it's like, you know, one of the top cardiologists in the country or one of the top, you know, urologists in the country would be a key opinion leader. But thank you for asking. (laughs) Classic never feel mistake. never feel bad for asking what those acronyms mean. I I, I may have used it and and I shouldn't have. Sorry about that. <laughs> now people know what a KOL is. Though so that's good. Exactly. And now they know what a formative and summative study is as well. So that's good. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> uh, Luca, any other uh, questions before we before we wrap it up? No, I think this this is a very nice. You know, this has been a very nice interview. I I learned a lot of things, not just what a KOL is, but but also. <laughs> how how well other people are doing with interacting with external suppliers or customers, which you seem to have a knack for, Jose, because you know the, you're the first person to have told me that it's actually easy. <laughs> I, I don't mean easy. Right? I don't mean easy, easy. <laughs> I just mean that from a relative point of view, um, you know, agile versus non-agile. You know, from a relationship point of view, I think should be easier. 
I think it should be easier to, to, to be agile um, from a relationship point of view. I mean, in fact, we've got clients these days that ask us for it, right? Like, you know, even before we, we get into that part of the discussion, like, you know, can, like, are you going to operate with sprints? Like, are we going to be able to see, you know, incremental progress across the board? And I'm like, yeah, of course, absolutely. I mean, that that's how we operate, you know? And, and also, you know, just from other practical points of view, um, like we do regular weekly meetings and, you know, again, relationships are about trust and you build trust through evidence, right? And so if on a weekly basis we're meeting and we're showing you, okay, here's what we finished over the last week, here's what we're working on over the next week. And when we meet again next week, the things that we were told you we were going to be working on, we've completed or make, made appropriate progress. Then, you know, you start building that confidence and then... That also helps you that that kind of puts, you know, equity into your little piggy bank so that when you do hit those hiccups and you have to come back and go, guys, we're, you know, we've just hit a roadblock. You've, you've accumulated a certain level of goodwill that you can, you know, that you can pull against. So it's, it's little tactics like that, that, that you have to do, you know, and ultimately it really boils down to building a culture where your team really does care about executing and, and delivering a good product and, and helping your clients uh, be successful. Because if you've got that, then the other stuff is, is more natural. Well said. Uh, so, Jose, uh, where can people uh, go to find you online? Our website, boldtype.com. Um, you know, you can look me up at, on LinkedIn, Jose Borquez. That's B-O-H-O-R-Q-U-E-Z. So a lot easier said than spelled. You did a great job, Jeff. I'm impressed. Um, that, I mean, that, those are probably the two best places Alrighty, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. This has been the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luca Gianni. And we will see you next time. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jose, for being here. Bye.